Dear writer, I wanted to open this letter with a quote. Reading books by Latina writers helped me recapture a pride in my culture that goes beyond my old neighborhood. They taught me that these gritty corners of the world can be beautiful, that our stories are worthy of being told. And that is by Vanessa Martir. It's from a New York Times article titled, Do You See Yourself in the Books You Read? by Nicole Daniels, published December 12th, 2019. Now I am not Latina. I am Filipina, or in more colloquial terms, Pinay. With regards to this quote, it carries tremendous intersectional weight that can be carried over to the Filipina literary experience, where books by Filipina ex-writers are very important and that the narrative belong to us, center us, and that our stories not be told from anyone else's gaze. had the unfortunate experience of coming across a certain individual who was a white cisgender male who felt and continues to feel that our stories can be told by just about anyone outside our culture as long as they exhibit an interest without understanding the nuances, idiosyncrasies, and lived experiences of the Filipina X community. I cannot stress enough how important our stories matter and that our stories be told by us. We are human with very lived experiences that I'm sure different communities of color can relate to each other. As a marginalized writer, our ethnicities also cover the entire economic spectrum, which shapes where we live, how we live, who we build intimate relationships and community with, and what stories we choose to tell. You should be able to write about your experience without overthinking it. It breaks my heart how many writers of Filipino descent I've met who felt insecure about being an adequate authority to write about things Filipino. As a writer of Filipino descent myself, no one can take away your blood and ancestry. It's literally embedded in your bones. Also, write what is true. I don't write for a white audience, so it never feels like a conscious effort in expressing my Filipinaness. The reader will either get it or won't, because at the end of the day, our writing is something any reader either will or won't relate to. And if a white reader doesn't get it, I don't think it's our responsibility to explain every little nuance about ourselves. For any marginalized writer out there who has faced rejection because you think our stories don't matter, I got a rejection two weeks ago. <laughs> I'm also going to talk about rejections as it feels like that constant elephant in the room that no writer wants to really talk about especially as I feel being a marginalized writer. I get rejection so often that I've come to expect every submission will come with a rejection and I've learned to move on quickly. I don't wanna give the impression that rejection is all to be expected as acceptances do come down the chute, but I want you to know that rejection doesn't mean our stories don't matter. In fact, I've learned rejection has come to mean a couple of important things. One, after waiting months for a response that ultimately led to a rejection, 
a moment of clarity arrived where I realized that the piece indeed needed some fine tuning. And a sigh of relief washed over me as I immediately thought, thank God this piece wasn't accepted as I would have been embarrassed for having a shoddy piece of work out there. Two, rejection is part of any stage of one's writing career. I used to think rejection miraculously stopped when one became established, but as I've come to learn, even from the most seasoned writers, that simply isn't true. When it comes to facing my own rejections, I know deep in my gut, you can't compare yourself to another writer and their journey. One has no idea how many rejections and personal obstacles an author faces, not just within themselves, but within the industry before they get to that sweet moment of, I have arrived. That feeling of, I have arrived, may never even come as we writers, particularly marginalized ones, work tirelessly at what we do even after X number of publications and rejections. I can't help but cringe at the terms emerging and established that are widely used to describe the stage where writers are at. Even I use these terms, but secretly still cringe. Before I ever had a book published, my work had already appeared in over three dozen publications in various journals and anthologies. And I had already performed three dozen readings at colleges, universities, and literary events. There were times where without a book, I wondered if I would ever climb out of the emerging wormhole, because that's what it feels like a wormhole. Now, with my book's publication, an achievement I don't take for granted, I admit that I don't bask in its moment of achievement. Maybe I should, as writing and rejection and writing again and editing and editing again and taking a break and submitting and taking another break and waiting for an acceptance until that process starts all over again in that order or different order is what I've been doing, what we've been doing for so long. It's what we do. It's important to remember that the publishing industry isn't made up of unbiased robots. There are human beings behind it with their own predilections, prejudices, and motivations on what they think sells. Particularly if you're a marginalized writer who feels your story lies outside of the quote-unquote mainstream, believe there will be someone who believes in your story. Also, the definition of quote-unquote mainstream changes over time. So if you're a marginalized writer, believe that your story has the power to change the tide and will not be drowned out. You have autonomy on where you want your work to appear and be valued and appreciated. Don't ever let a rejection stop you from mastering the art of writing. The practice of writing itself exceeds the countless rejections and acceptances. Without writing, there is no Pulitzer Prize. Never forget and always believe that your story matters and that you, as the primary storyteller of your own story, matters. All the best, Elsa Valmigiano. Wow. <laughs> Thank you so much for that letter. I got like, I think I, um, I feel like I was going to burst into tears several times as you were reading that. It really spoke to me. And, um, and that, dear readers, was Elsa Valmigiano offering you this month's letter of encouragement for Plume, a writer's podcast. A bit about Plume. Um, for those of you tuning in for the first time, Plume's goal is to build an inspiring and collaborative community of women and non-binary writers, supporting you wherever you are on your creative writing journey. You can find us here. You can also find us on Patreon under Plume, a writer's companion, and we're your hosts, uh, Samantha Tatenko 
and Melanie Unruh. Uh, and on today's episode, we're super excited to talk with Elsa. Uh, so a bit about Elsa before we jump in. Um, Elsa Valmigiano is the author of We Are No Longer Babylon, her debut collection from New Rivers Press. Um, Elsa's work has appeared in Mud Seasons Review, Yes Poetry, Cosmonauts Avenue, Anomaly, Cherry Tree, Marius, Atsambuquitas, Cantias, Poetry Northwest, and many others, as well as anthologies such as Walang Hia, Loon Magic, and Other Night Sounds, and What God is Honored Here. Elsa is an alum of the Disquiet International Literary Program in Lisbon and summer literary seminars hosted in Tbilisi. She holds an MFA in creative writing from Mills College and has performed numerous readings. She is the best of the net and a Pushcart nominee. On her website, slicingtomatoes.com, Elsa showcases a directory of Filipina artists of the Philippine diaspora alongside her poetry and prose. All right, so let's jump into this conversation. Thank you so much for, for sharing your letter. That was great. It was really inspirational. I was frantically writing notes. I have so many questions, um, but I think a central yeah. one, yeah, of course, um, I think a central one that came to me is you talked a lot in the beginning about, you know, being true to your culture and your voice, but then also this idea that the publishing industry is not just robots, that it is people with biases, people upholding white supremacy, people that are embedded with these ideas that are not, it makes it even that much harder to move through the industry. Um, So how do you keep going with like an additional hurdle like that? You know, it's, it sounds really tough. I think one of the things that I've done to combat that actually was I started my website and at first I was, you know, I'm such a traditionalist where I submit and then, you know, I wait for an acceptance or rejection. And that was basically my life for a very long time. And then I realized, you know, as you're dealing with these biases in the publishing industry, you really have to take ownership and also look at your writing as um, a community vehicle. So if you're going to communicate with your community, you really need to be creative on how your writing gets there. Like, why would you just give it to the gatekeepers who are primarily white editors? So invent your platform. Um, So when I actually was in Lisbon, a lot of, you know, the fellow poets were like, you should start a website also, you know, we love your poetry. And I was like, oh, I I don't know about that. And I had brainstormed with a really good friend of mine, um, one of my best friends that I met at Mills. And, you know, we were coming up with like what this website would look like. And one of the goals was to create a website where I could feature my own poetry and prose, but also pull in visual artists of the Philippine diaspora. And it just became this nice marriage between the two. And I ended up getting a lot more attention Um, But also a lot of community gathering happened because of the art and people were drawn to the art. And so I was able to solicit artists, you know, in the motherland and anywhere in the diaspora, really. Like I've pulled people from, you know, Filipinas from the Netherlands, Dubai. (laughs) I'm I'm just like, wow, we're like everywhere, Um, you know, Canada and, you know, United States. But it's just really, really amazing. And so when it comes down to combating those gatekeepers, I think, you know, my suggestion is be creative. Don't be scared. Um, You don't have to stick to the traditional route because if you really think about the traditional route and who's holding the keys, it is, you know, predominantly a lot of white editors. So you really have to come up with some kind of idea and be creative and don't be scared of that just because you're going against the grain. There's nothing wrong with that. I, I was listening to your to your letter. I had so many moments of I, where I was like, "That's me!" Right when you were mentioning like Filipino writers who like don't feel like they can own their identity enough to like um, write of the of the Philippines. So I really resonated, and even your opening with the with the um, quote about Latina writers. Um, you know, I I once have said that I was always looking for myself in between um, Chinese writer, Chinese American writers and um, Latinx writers. Like I was always taking courses in there, almost trying to find myself in there. So it really resonated with me that you opened in that way. Um, 
I didn't plan to ask this question because listeners, you should know that Melanie and I, we don't hear this um, letter ahead of time. So we're responding kind of in real time about that. So I was wondering like, what, who are the writers that influenced you early on as you were um, starting out? Like, uh, did you have a similar of like looking for yourself through certain things or did you touch to Filipino writers immediately? I started tapping into Filipino writers actually during law school. And it was my older sister that passed me a short story collection by Evelina Galang, which was her mild American self. And I had never read anything by a Filipino American writer before. I was like blown away. I was like, wow, we're out there. So this was back in the year 2000 or 2001. Um, and she passed me that book. And then I really started to look for them. So then the next writer was Cecilia Mangara Brainard, and then Efshonil Jose, who is a Ilocano writer and is back home in the motherland. Um, Cecilia and Evelina are more Philam writers. But I really started to dive into that because, so this was later on, this was like after college. I can't even remember really if I had read, well, I read um, Marianne Villanueva in college, um, her short stories, but not like a novel. Um, so it was fairly new, um, which I'm kind of like a dinosaur now. So new is like 20, 25 years ago. <laughs> yeah, it's like 25 years ago. Um, and so I think those are the writers that really helped me open up just writing as an option like you can do this like we are there it's you have to look for us sometimes and people have to introduce you to us but we are here and i think you know two decades later i feel like i've seen this explosion of you know filipino writers of the diaspora who've really come out with you know poetry prose novels um you know poetry collections and it just really blows my mind because it's not anything I saw when I was growing up. And I wonder about if I had these writers and poets in my life when I was a teenager, what would I, what would my life look like today? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So those are, are pretty much the beginning, you know, if I have to say they're almost like elementary school, <laughs> even though it wasn't an elementary school because I was always already in law school, but you know what I mean? Like it's like, these were the, writers that set the foundation of telling me your life as a writer is possible. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I remember being a teenager um, and visiting the Philippines and asking my cousins, um, what's a good Filipino writer that I should read, right? We were in bookstores there. And, you know, other than Jose Rizal, like nobody could tell me anything to read. I remember leaving uh -huh. the bookstore and only seeing like, even in the Philippines, like American writers being the primary representatives there. So that always stuck with me. Um, and I want to turn um, our attention to your piece, Down the Rabbit Hole, mm -hmm. which is your featured piece this month. And um, listeners, you can get this piece downloaded on Patreon or also find it in Elsa's collection. Um, you know, and I was thinking as I was reading this about the role silence plays in this story, right? There's a lot of silence. There's the um, the unspoken words between our narrator and the cousin Ning Ning. Um, we've got the silence. There's this like m just a, a quick moment that was like full of so much other weight of um, with this uncle that's mentioned early on and the mention of him not being aware how much the narrator remembers from an encounter when she was five. And then we have the narrator's reasons for being in the Philippines for three months alone, right, which is strange to the family. And it comes out much later in the story. And I don't want to give away the ending for our listeners who haven't heard what that reason is, but um, we don't really uh, even learn a whole bunch of details around that. It almost um, felt like even the narrator like didn't want to tell the family, did it almost on accident, almost felt like it didn't, uh, she didn't want to tell the readers either. So I was wondering if you could tell us more about this theme of silence. I mean, it struck out to me too, especially because there's so much noise in this story, right? The noise of the, mm -hmm. um, the engines, the noise of family, the tricycles. Um, so yeah, if you could talk about silence, like how conscientious was this? Um, is it a theme that plays out in a lot of your work? It's, you know, it's really interesting because I don't look at it as silence. 
I look at it as an unspoken affinity. That's how I look at it. Uh, because if we look, not to give anything away, I won't, but um, if we look at the narrator and the relationship she has with her cousin, you have to really understand that these two women have only met like two to three times in their whole entire lifetime. And yet there's something about them that there's an affinity, like a sisterhood, even though they like haven't hung out. Like, you know, when they were 10, you know, they were close, like, you're, you know, your cousins, you're 10, you play. That's like your immediate, like, I'm close to you. You're my best friend because we're playing. And then you're, you're adults, you remember that time, even though they hadn't seen each other in 20 years, there's still that affinity where you feel the closeness between them. And it's, it's indescribable. I mean, it's, it's, um, I don't want to sound hokey, but it's like a, like a spiritual connection. And like, I feel like something that's very telling also about Filipino culture that just doesn't come off in words, but you, it's a, it's an emotion, a feeling it's there. It's a presence. And I guess to the Western eye, it could be viewed as silence. But to me, it's this unspoken affinity that these two women have, and they probably always will have, no matter what, like maybe the next time if they meet when they're 70, that will still be there. It's just this weird, like, you are my blood, you belo we belong to each other. And yet there's all this drama and um, you know, conflict and things that are going on in their own personal lives. But when they are in each other's space, it's just them. And it's this acknowledgement. And it's, it's a really beautiful thing, but it's also very sad because you look at, um, you know, how they both grew up. So one stayed in the motherland and the other one, the narrator had a, obviously a much more privileged life. And then to come back to the place where she's from and her family's from and to see what they left behind it's, I mean, it's such a, it's such a moment of, I think, inner conflict for the narrator to see like, this could have been me easily, mm -hmm. but it's not. So I think when it comes to silence, there's a lot of just unspoken understanding between the characters. And me as a writer, I wanted to bring that out because there's so much like dialogue in a way that really you have to read in between the lines. It's not so much in the words, it's how mm -hmm. the characters carry themselves in the interaction. I mean, the whole story felt in between the lines, right? You mentioned these like few interactions and, you know, and there was so much in between, like even those interactions, not a lot is said. Um, and the story kind of carries the thread of, all of the unspoken. Uh, yeah, and I love what you're talking about, about the, the merging of the stories. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I, I also want to add, like, I think when we look at, you know, what's going on between the Philippines, you know, the motherland and here in the diaspora, sometimes the political language is, is very loud. And so you want to really see the intimacy of what's happening in people's lives because it's mm -hmm. easy to put labels on anything. Um, but in this story, if you just remove all the labels and you see the characters at their core, at just these very vulnerable moments, it's like you really forget about the politics and you're just like, you feel compassion. I mean, I hope so. Um, that was one of the things because at least for me, I, you know, when I was there, just like all of this information was falling on my lap and I was like, mm -hmm why is this happening to me? Like I, like, I had no idea these things existed. So it was, it was very interesting to learn about these things from, from cousins. Like, so the narrator learns a lot of things from her cousins. And it's also, it's just really interesting that these cousins who she hasn't seen, like one of them she just met, um, are willing to pour out their stories so easily to her. Like without mm -hmm. question, just kind of give it to her. And it's just kind of this weird, like trust. And it's like, why do you trust me to carry your story? And there, there's a bravado also to the storyteller, um, not the narrator, but to the cousins who are the storytellers who are telling the story to her. Um, there's a bravado to them where they're like, what? 
I mean, what are you going to do? I'm telling you who I am because this is really the only time we're going to meet. So, and we'll probably never see each other again. So this is, you're going to remember me by this. So yeah. I, I think that's really stunning. Yeah. Yeah. And it definitely came out that way as a reader. The narrator's cousin Ning Ning is at the center of this piece and she comes across, she's really engaging, but like we, it's hard to kind of get a handle on her. Most we learn about her is through other people's stories, like you were just saying. Mm -hmm. uh, so what was the hardest part about writing a character like that who kind of withholds a lot? I think the thing about that is that you do have to trust the unknown and you have to sit with it and be okay with it because the narrator and her cousin, especially the narrator, doesn't really know anything about her. The only fond memories she has of her cousin is when they were 10, when, you know, times were innocent then. And so they see each other now as, as you know, women, in, you know, in their early 30s. And when you realize the situation that the cousin is in, again, not giving anything away, but when you realize the situation that she's in, the narrator has to be really careful about considering her own privilege and not being judgmental about the situation that her cousin is in. Because the narrator, you know, who's come from the United States, she's not any better than her cousin. And I wanted to make that clear because I feel like there's divisions that are drawn between Filipinos of the diaspora and Filipinos of the motherland. I mean, that is an easy war that's going on. And it was like about this meeting of these two women where there, that war wasn't there. It was really about compassion and just the narrator looking at her cousin's situation and being just like, oh, okay, this is how it is. Um, and also the cousin, because I'm sure the cousin's, you know, thinking, oh my gosh, my fancy American cousin has come to the Philippines. Like, I don't know anything. Like, oh, what do I know? And the narrator revealing, no, actually, you know a lot more than I do. And I think that is such a, a beautiful exchange because, you know, a lot of judgment could go either way, right, from both sides. But I think there's this, this, quiet, this very quiet surrender of you know this and you know that. It's like, oh, no, but you know this and you know that too. I am not better than you. I am not smarter than you. You actually have a lot of knowledge that I wish I had access to. And so, um, yeah, I think that was, that was one of the things. And I didn't really have trouble writing the story because I just really looked at it as I experienced it and I remembered it and I saw it and the details. And the details is what really matters to me in terms of bringing out the cousin. Great. I love that. So the story, it appears, um, again, as, as I said earlier in your debut collection, we are no longer Babylon. Um, and the Center for Babylon Studies describes a Babylon as a woman or man from Philippine indigenous communities, someone who has the ability to mediate with the spirit world and has her own spirit guides and given gifts of healing, foretelling, and insight. She's also described as a shaman. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us how you settled on this as the title of your collection and how is that indigenous Filipino spirit world reflected in your work? I think one of the things as a Filipina, a Pinay of the diaspora, is that we have shamans in our ancestry. We all do. Um, and I think that's a beautiful thing. But, you know, due to colonization, proselytization, imperialism, you know, diaspora, exodus. I think we lost that. But at the same time, it's not necessarily lost. It's just lurking and not acknowledged. And so one of the things about Babaylan is when it comes to their training as indigenous Babaylan, they go there. I mean, they're training is just rigorous and painful and it's basically like crucifixion like going through so much pain in order and this could be emotional pain physical pain spiritual pain psychological pain going through that and rising above it so that you are not swallowed 
by this evil, but rather you learn and you heal, not just yourself, but then you heal the community. And so when I think about trauma and how that translates to uh, Filipinos of the diaspora, as well as Filipinos in the motherland, because, you know, when indigenous Babayan who's have the proper training, um, you know, the modern day Filipino has kind of left that behind. But there, it's also interesting because you can say they've left that behind, but then why do we have things like anting anting? You know, like, why do we have, you know, charms, like amulets, like, this? like, why do we have this? You know, it's like little things like that. It's like, is it really lost? Or are we just hiding it in little things? And so when I titled the collection, We Are No Longer Babaylan, I wanted to really draw out what would the Babaylan look like in modern day society after all the trauma that we've been through, not just historically, but personally within our own families and community, can we actually rise from that? Can we actually still call ourselves Babaylan? Um, and if we're too afraid to, or we just don't feel like we're worthy of that title, how does the practice still come out in our lives in dealing with traumatic events? And so when I say we are no longer Babaylan, in a way, we actually are. It's just that the acknowledgement isn't necessarily there, but it doesn't mean that we're not there. Oh, wow. That's an amazing metaphor uh, to, to think about. I think I'll be thinking about that for a while now. Yeah, thank you for that. So this collection is essays and stories. So we'd love to hear more about that. How did you decide on this label? And when a reader engages with their stories, are they labeled as one or the other? We sort of touched on this earlier pre-interview, but I'm curious for our readers. Um, you know, as I said, I couldn't really come up with a label. I think labels are really confining, like essay stories. Hey, why can't it be both? Why can't it be poetry too? You know, as I said, I think when it comes down to writing in general, even to fiction and poetry, it's really about stretching those boundaries of how we see, you know, like in this instance, creative nonfiction. Um, I couldn't just say, oh, these are essays or these are just stories because there's elements of reflection, of analysis, of comparison. Um, poetry is in there as well. And to box it into one thing just didn't seem fair to the collection. And I really felt that thematically they all fit. But if I put them in boxes, like, okay, this is just an essay, then it would exclude all the other pieces that actually fit thematically with it as a whole. And so I think when it comes to writing, is it's really have fun, play. Um, I don't think we should define ourselves through these boundaries and these labels. Like, as I said in the writer letter, you know, I cringe at the emerging and established terms, even though I use them myself, you know, like, but I do, I really cringe because what does that mean to be emerging if you literally are published in like a hundred journals, but you don't have a mm -hmm. book? Um, so do mm -hmm. we just judge, you know, established based on one book? Like I was actually thinking of Khalid Husseini who wrote The Kite Runner and, you know, he's a physician and you know, he was just a doctor like his whole life. And then he wrote The Kite Runner. And then all of a sudden it's like, so he's established because he wrote this one book. And, you know, there's these other writers yeah. who are hustling and like publishing in a hundred journals. Like, doesn't that mm -hmm. count as established? Yeah. So I think we have to be really careful about cubbyholing writers and, you know, certain terms. And, yeah. and also, especially when we're writing, like to really just have fun because we are, as we're writing, I really believe that we're also defining what writing is because writing is dynamic. I don't think it's the stagnant, like this is how Shakespeare wrote, so we have to follow this. Like, mm -hmm. I, I also, I think with like communities of color, LGBTQIA, like those movements coming together, like we are creating a new writing tradition. Yeah, I think it it's so back. funny you said, oh, sorry, Melanie, go oh. ahead. I was just going to say, I think it goes back to what you said about the gatekeepers and that you have to find your own path. And like, just because, you know, 
John Smith, head of whatever, Hachette or whatever company, says that an essay looks like this and a story looks like this and this part has to be true and this part has to be poetry and whatever, like it, that shouldn't matter. Like you should be able to define it yourself. I think, you know, climbing out of that emerging wormhole, as you call it, I like that. <laughs> So I'm so, so glad you said that about emerging writers, because I remember, um, you know, the last time I went to the AWP conference, um, for those who don't know, it's like the big um, creative writing conference, I have mixed feelings about, uh, but I always get pulled in because it's fun to be around so many writers. I was, you know, people are passing out flyers. And I had that moment where somebody was like, you look like an emerging writer. And I just like, I felt so bad because my response to them, my facial response to them was like, (laughs) I'm sure so negative, but it was that where I was like, I've had all of these things in journals. Number one, is it because I look young that you just assume that number two, that feeling of like, without a book, you know, even though you've been writing for, I mean, in my case now, like, feels like decades, it feels like, right? Uh, mm-hmm. yeah. how, how does that go? That's such a sort of um, strange thing to say. Like, do you need elbow patches? Like, what does an established writer look like, you know? Yeah. Just, right. Yeah. That sounds right. ridiculous. Yeah. So, okay. So this is a bit of a selfish question and you also alluded this to in your letter and, um, and I already alluded to this in my response to your letter, but um, so thinking about myself and I'm hoping there's some listeners out there who might feel like me um, and your letter kind of confirmed this. I've had so many stop and start moments of trying to write um, my Filipino self, like my queer self is something that comes out very easily for me. You know, I was uh, born in Ohio and I was raised in Oregon and I was raised in a, a community that didn't have a lot of Filipinos. So it's really difficult for me, even though I have pieces of myself that I have been trying to get onto the page, right? So some of me wonders, um, my my dad died when I was 20 and his family is the one in the Philippines. And so after his passing, we we haven't really gone back. Um, and I, so my my actual writer self hasn't um, gone back, right? Like my writing identity took off in my mid uh, early 20s, like kind of a bit, I mean, really it launched after my dad passed. But, you know, so I, I, I'm wondering about like, what advice do you have for me or others like me about um, it doesn't even necessarily have to be about being Filipino, but I think that's part of that diaspora that you you grow this disconnect from your own lineage. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm wondering about advice um, of, yeah, and I, the way I worded this is that who may have become so indoctr- indoctrinated into American thinking and our stories that it's difficult for our, our own blood to appear on our pages. Like what uh, advice might you have? Big question. I, no, that's an excellent question. Excellent, excellent one. Um, and I've been asked this question before. I think one of the things about being Filipino and just being a writer of color in general, if you feel disconnected from your lineage or your heritage, there's always something about nuance. And nuance is, it's hard to write nuance, right? You have mm. to really create a scene. And then in creating that scene, there's the nuance. It's kind of like when you were saying, Mm -hmm. oh, there's a lot of silence and down the rabbit hole, right? But Mm -hmm. I don't see it as silence. It's something fundamentally Filipino when it comes down to the feeling of affinity with someone you don't speak to. Mm -hmm. It's not just, that's what I mean. It's like the nuances. Like, Um, But no, you're so right, because I really recognize myself in those moments, right? It felt very familiar to me um, that you're, you're totally right. It's on nuance. Sorry, go on. I just, I thought. Yeah, like, I'm trying to think of something else. um, Because here, I I have to look through, because it's just, I have to look this at a while. But there's other pieces where, oh, okay. Can I ruin this with the collection? Yeah, go for it. Tell us. Yeah, talk about it. Um, with the miscarriage piece called Blighted, you know, I'm talking about miscarriage, which women, regardless of color, regardless of culture, go through miscarriage, right? Mm -hmm. But the thing about that specific story, so she talks about it in a very scientific, you know, sense of what's happened to her, get into the, you know, 
the medical specifics and, you know, the whole um, ultrasound, like that's something that relates across the board, which is beautiful. But the thing about how it comes down to the Filipina woman is she starts to grab from oral tradition, you know, the Aswang, which we know the Aswang is the fetus eaters, right? They're the monster that eats fetuses. I know Melanie's like, what the? <laughs> what the hell is an Aswang? Well, just to give you some context, Melanie, and I'm sure, you know what, the thing about the, thing about the Aswang and the beauty behind the Aswang, the Mananangal specifically, is that, so in Ireland, they have the Banshee. She's not that different from the Aswang. It's a very shaman, pagan creature, very feminist, um, which, you know, just shows pre-colonial times, our societies were very matriarchal before patriarchy took over. Um, but she, so in that miscarriage piece, she grabs from oral tradition of the Aswang and she actually starts to think, am I an Aswang? Has my body just eaten my child? And that's why I'm having a miscarriage. That's where the big nuance comes in of the culture. So you have that injection of the Filipino-ness in a very global experience. So I think yeah. when it comes to stories, your personal experiences, you have memory from childhood. You know, you have memories of your if you have memories of your grandparents, you know, from your father or memories of your father, you know, himself, those tiny, tiny little things where he is representative of your Filipino self is actually already inside you with your own experiences. And so you just have to pull it out a little bit, just a tiny, like a tiny bit, like in that miscarriage piece, I pulled out the aswang, like literally in one sentence, like tiny, tiny, mm -hmm. like it just takes one sentence and then it gives you context of, okay, this is specifically Philippine experience. This is specifically Sam's experience. This is specifically her experience as someone from the diaspora, all in mm. one sentence. Cool. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. Question for you. So any writers, are there any writers that you want to plug or any um, projects that you're working on that you want to plug here at the end of our conversation? So Adrian Oliver... Who's one of my dearest, dearest friends. Um, she has a chat book coming out in Nomadic Press. And then she has another chat book coming out with Finishing Line Press, which I like to call, you're having twins. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, oh my God, like you're having twins. Like that's amazing. Um, you know, cause we, we consider our books and our chat books like our babies, right? Yeah. And I was like, who does that? Who just has two publications coming out in one year? That's, that's amazing. Um, but her name is Adrian Oliver and she has a chat book coming out in Nomadic Press and one with Finishing Line Press. Um, I don't know the titles of her chat book. She did tell me and it just slipped my mind, but I can tell you what they are about. Um, so Adrian is um she's a black poet she's from the south and her poems really talk about the black female body and the trauma that has gone through that body historically mm. and how that manifests you know many generations later through illness you know through whether it's mental health or physical health and how it gets traced really like trauma really is buried in the bones and she has these beautiful lines where you know about illness and she can trace it literally to the atlantic slave trade i mean i'm just like who does that with their poetry i'm like that just blows my mind amazing yeah, amazing wow. stuff um and i've seen her read and you know we've seen each other read she's fabulous um so adrian oliver check her out uh, another poet slash graphic novelist slash prose writer, Trinidad Escobar. She is coming out with a graphic novel called Of Sea and Venom. It should be released by FSG. Cool. Um, and that's coming. It, it was supposed, I think it was supposed to come out this year, but with pandemic, it's like everyone's publication date has been pushed, you know, so I think it's coming out 2022, but it was supposed to be released this year, but um, yeah, so that's a graphic novel to look out for by Trinidad Escobar. Um, Janice Sapigal, uh, her second poetry collection, Like a Solid to a Shadow, 
was originally printed by Timeless Infinite Light. And then they, I think they hit, went under, but it is being re-released. So that's really exciting because I know when this book went out of print, everyone's like, where is this book? I really want it. <laughs> so just to announce like it is being released again, you will nice. find, I believe nice. the publisher is Night Boat Books. So definitely check it out. I have read it under the original um, publisher. I got, I think I got one of the last copies that was out there. I was so glad to nab this copy. I was like, oh my God, thank God. Uh, but it's a beautiful collection about um, her father who passed away when she was very, very young. And so it really dives into, so Janice is Ilocano like me. Yeah, so it's about her dad and um, really exploring the Ilocano roots through this parent that is no longer there. So mm. it's a really, really beautiful poetry collection. And that is an extremely uh, experimental collection, which mm, I just cool. love. Like talk about breaking boundaries. I mean, we have prose, we have, you know, verse, we have diagrams. Like it's just, she, mm -hmm. she just does it all. I'm just like, wow, she really teaches me on what is possible. So, awesome. thank and you. then the thank fourth you. one, I have oh, one yeah. more. Her name is Anna Vengala Jones, and she has a short story collection. Um, I've been following her for a long time. And what I remember one of the stories I read from her is she, she, her stories, like, well, at least the one I read was very like fairy tale like, like metaphorical but just very profound, like about the body and about agency. And I was just like, wow, like, <laughs> just, I never like, wow, who can write stories like that? So that just blows my mind. So yes, yeah. those are the four, four authors who I am like, you know, let's do this. Awesome. Both those are some great authors. recommendations and with a really cool range too. Thank you for that. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Last question. What is the best advice you've ever received as a writer or that you've given to yourself? The best advice I can tell you. Um, this was from the late Papa Diasis. He's a visual artist of the Philippines. Um, never stop writing. That's the advice. Um, and I'll give you some context. So when I was in law school, I just stopped. Well, no, that's not true. I did keep writing. But it was just like little poems here, little poems there. Um, and I just really didn't believe myself a poet or a writer because I just kind of did it on the side. And it was when I met Papa Deasis at a uh, arts festival, a Filipino arts festival, when he just, you know, nonchalantly asked me, you know, do you write? And no one had ever asked me that question. He was like, do you write? And I was like, um, I guess. And he... He didn't say anything. He goes, never stop writing. And it just had mm. such a profound effect on me. Like I was like, oh my God, <laughs> literally like after that, <laughs> all right, let's just write it, write it, write. Um, but it was, it was really interesting to hear those three words because it honestly felt like someone was giving me permission. Mm. I never gave it to myself before. So yeah, never stop writing. And you know, when I say never stop, we can, we all have lulls. We're human beings. Like we're going to stop and take a break sometimes. But I think never stop writing means like there's mental writing where we're actually not writing. We're just kind of like laying on the couch thinking about what we want to write. Like to me, that's like going to be writing. So it's like, you're actually never stopping. Awesome. That's an amazing note to end on. Oh, so thank you. thank you. Yeah. Thank you thank so you for much for this. Me. This was so fun. Wow. And I like that. So I know you always joke say, I'm like, oh, I've asked too many questions, but I love when we organically, we have a list of questions and then other things just come up and it, it just, you know, kind of flows rather than being like, and this question and that question. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I wanted to warn you actually. So the last, um, I guess her podcast, it's um, Juanita Mantz. She's, uh, she's Latina. And we did her show we could have gone on for five hours. <laughs> just I feel like here, we must have cut like five questions out just so you know, because I think I added like five questions in, but I know. Yeah. hilarious. Like by the end of her hour, she's like, I didn't even get to my questions. <laughs> I know. Well, you, you say things that just spark so much additional 
thought. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know if it's like, um, I think we're all roughly around the same age. So I also wonder how much it is. It's like, we've been doing this writing thing mm-hmm. for so long that so much of what you said just resonated with me on so many levels. I mean, it's even the like, never stop thinking about your rejection uh, com- part of your letter, you know, where that's like my, you know, some of those rejections, like they get so bad that you just are like, I quit, you know, like I'm just done with this. Like I can't take another rejection of my book or my poetry collection. And I just, I'm like, nobody wants my stories. Maybe they're not, not, they don't matter. And it was like, you addressed all of those, like in this interview. So uh, this is just a personal thing. So like, I needed to hear so much of what you said today. So thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we did. If you want to read Elsa's work, we encourage you to check out her story, which is included in the June edition of our Digital Plume. This is available on our Patreon. You can join our Patreon for as little as $2 to support our work. And at the $5 level, you can have access to a written copy of Elsa's letter, as well as the featured story we talk about in this episode, Down the Rabbit Hole. You can also order a copy of her book, We Are No Longer the Bylon. We're having a lot of fun this season, and we hope you're enjoying the show. If you are, please consider rating and reviewing this podcast on iTunes or whatever platform you use to listen. This helps other people find our show. You can also follow us on social media at Plume for Writers on Instagram and Twitter or Plume, a writer's companion on Facebook. And we'll be back in your ears in two weeks with a really fun roundtable. Happy writing.